So we've got two Bible readings today. The first is Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then our next passage is Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Thank you very much, Amy. Thanks for uh, bringing us our Bible readings. And if you could make sure that you've got your Bibles still open, um, we'll be uh, in the Romans passage for the majority of time, but then looking at a few other passages as well. Um, well, in July and August 2014, about nine years ago, baptisms went viral. They went viral across the US and the UK particularly. Young and old, rock stars and rappers, footballers and film stars, millions of people filming themselves being baptised. It was a revival, but it wasn't religious. Oh no, some of you have probably already twigged what it was. The Ice Bucket Challenge, which was raising money for ALS, as it's known in the US, or motor neuron disease, and the research into that here in the UK as well. This craze sparked participants. How many of you, just out of interest, hands up if you were part of the Ice Bucket Challenge? Oh, there were a few. Good, good. I had the pleasure of um, poor tipping it over one of my sons and my nephew, which was very fun. But um, this craze, it, it sparked the participants were filming themselves. They had to nominate two other people within this as well to do the challenge within 24 hours, and it went on social media. It triggered this international chain reaction uh, of charity giving. Even President Barack Obama at the time was called out and challenged. And no, he didn't take it up, but yes, he did make a donation. Now, whilst this wasn't a religious thing, it's interesting, when you think about it, it actually shared some common traits with baptism. Just hear me out on this. 
Firstly, it was joyful. That was clear from everything everyone was doing. Um, the challenges made people happy. There was laughter. There was joy. It united people. It, it was linked by this one action that was shared across the globe via social media. It was a public badge of honor. Look, I've done the ice bucket challenge. It was seen. I'm in the club. It was good. It made a positive impact on this raising cash for charities, over $220 million, in fact, when it was totaled up in the space of a couple of months. It even had its own liturgy. So the candidate is dressed appropriately. They're usually outside or sitting or standing, or as you can see here, Jimmy Fallon and his team are in a TV studio doing it live. But they're supported by friends who are filming and one who's usually ready to pour. They had plenty of water, icy cold. And the candidates said their promises to camera and they challenged their friends to join them as well. And then there was this act of self-denial, this humiliation in one sense for the greater good. And there was that moment when the uncomfortable moment when the priest or the friend held the vessel high over them and there was a weight. And then the water flooded down over the supplicant's head, passing just enough time to get the best shot possible as these liters of water drenched the candidate. You see, we are religious creatures. We do things with purpose. We're looking for meaning. These outward signs of belonging are important to us, whether it's from the football shirt that's worn or the brands we wear or the shared experiences, the Eurovision parties that people were having last night or supporting park runs on a Saturday morning. We're creatures that want community. We want to belong. We want to be part of something bigger. And this makes sense because God has set eternity in our hearts, as the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us. So it's right that his community, his family, his church has a mark of identity and belonging. And today in this series, in our um, looking at church and what it means, we're looking at baptism. Why do Christians get baptized? Well, quite simply, because Jesus commanded it. And we had that clearly in our first reading from Matthew 28, the climax of the gospel, this commissioning to his apostles, make disciples meant baptizing believers in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It meant teaching them to obey God's word. We do it because Jesus said, do it. And after Peter preached his Pentecost sermon and the people were cut to the heart, and they said, what shall we do? In response to hearing this good news of a crucified Messiah, Jesus, who is raised, Peter replied quite straightforwardly, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And those who accepted this message were baptized. About 3,000, we're told in verse 41, in Jerusalem, were added to the number of believers that day. So whether it's celebrated in an historic church building or if it's in the sea as um, some baptism, a baptism happening at Redeemer Church this weekend is taking place in the sea. I think it is. I don't think it's a river. Maybe it's a river or sea. But Greg's looking forward to doing that with John who's getting baptized. 
or an inflatable birthing pool in a playground as we do it. Baptism declares the benefits of Jesus Christ's redemption as we've been singing this morning. It's tangible. It's memorable. And it's not just to the believer being baptized, but to all who are watching Christian and non-Christian. And I appreciate there are so many questions that surround this one imperative, a singular imperative Jesus gave his church to be baptized. And if you look over the history of the church, how many questions there are about how to do this baptism? This one thing, who can get baptized? What does it do? How much water should I use? How do you use the water? Is it dunking? Is it pouring? Is it sprinkling? Um, do we need to be rebaptized? Do you need to have uh, water baptism and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is that? Is, is that something linked with it? Are they the same things? And this morning, I wish I could answer all those questions. And my mind was starting to melt as I was preparing this sermon. I went, Lord, I'm just going to try and answer. Try and answer too. What does baptism signify and does it save you? What does baptism signify and does it save you? And to root this as well in our Reformed tradition, um, in my own prayer times, I've been uh, going through the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a catechism that was written in the Netherlands. It's a, a Reformation catechism from 1563. And each Lord's Day, there's a question, uh, well, sometimes several questions, and there's a section, it goes through the um, sacraments, and so I've just put this up here to help root us a little bit. What are the sacraments? The sacraments, that's baptism and Lord's Supper, are holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. This is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Baptism marks the start, therefore, of a disciple's life. It is the entry point. It's a celebration of what Christ has done. And the Lord's Supper, which Jez will take us through as we look at the scriptures around the Lord's Supper next week, is for continuity. It's the sign given for Christians throughout their whole lives. So let's look. What is baptism a sign of? And there's no better place to see that in, than in Romans 6. So again, if you've got your Bibles open there, uh, let's look at that. In chapter 5, so what's happened just before in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul has laid out the good news that condemned sinful people like us are made right with God through one Savior. So in chapter 5, verse 15, we read, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, that is Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, uh, of what, the one man, sorry, how much more came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Verse 16. The gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life 
through the one man, Jesus Christ. Well, in those words, there's an awful lot of brilliant theology. But there are two representatives for us as human beings. There's Adam and there's Christ. In one, we're condemned. In the other, we have life. We are inherently sinful as part of uh, of the human race in Adam. And that corruption is seen actively in our lives, living lives centered on ourselves, pushing God out instinctively onto the periphery or just trying to suppress any idea of God or his truth. We make up our way of living. We make up our rules that fit us. It's all flowing out of that attitude and heart response of rebellion against God. So the gospel tells us we're more sinful than we'd ever known. But not only that, but that God is holy and gracious. He is a loving judge. And his gift is more abundant and beyond comparison to the sin we're in. That's what we're seeing there in Romans 5. When you come under the other head, Jesus, there's an abundant gift. So the gospel tells us you're more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever dared hope. What verses 15 to 16 show us is we receive forgiveness and righteousness from Jesus. Our moral efforts cannot contribute to any of our salvation. Imagine if the British government allowed a a natural citizen of the UK to take the citizenship test on behalf of a friend who wants to make Britain their home. And the British citizen scores 100% in the test and then handed the certificate, the passport to their friend, means they can make this place their home, it's all there for them. It would be odd if the friend then tried to retake the test or tried to top up the grade. There's there's nothing more to add to the score, is there? It's entirely complete. All that's left to do is gratefully live in the freedom of that gift. Take the passport. Enjoy. And in some ways, that's the picture here in chapter 5 and then in chapter 6 when it comes to our life in Christ. Look at how people believing in Christ are described in chapter 6, verse 2. What is it that Paul says there? We are those... Who have died to sin. You see, you're no longer under the ruling power of rebellion against God. Sin does not boss you around. Now we see our previous desires as lusts that we will resist. We won't chase after them. And then in verse 3, what do we read? Or or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See here, Paul explicitly mentions baptism. And the image of immersion is probably implied here as the word for baptized, which commonly means to be washed, was also used to refer to drowning or or, or being sunk in the Greek. And Paul links this to the death and burial that we see there in verse 4 of Romans 6. But it's interesting as well, isn't it, that he doesn't mention water which suggests Paul is really using the picture of a spiritual reality here, which baptism is a sign of. When we believe in Christ as God and Savior, we're united to Christ by faith, so that whatever is true of him is now legally true for us before God. Since Christ died, 
Dead people are free from sin. So we're freed from sin. And baptism is a sign that we are dead to sin. We're forgiven and free from its rule. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Jesus Christ was raised from the, the dead to new life. So in the same way now we're united to Christ, we must have new life. It's there in verse 4. And again in verse 5. Paul says in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is great news, isn't it, family? This is great news. Our final destination is in future glory with Jesus Christ, resurrected just like him because of everything he has done. Death to sin. A new resurrection life. And baptism is the visual aid declaring to us that we are dead to sin and alive with Christ. We have resurrection life. And therefore, as baptized believers, we have a new mindset. Look at this in verse 11. In the same way, count, and that word count is, is sort of a financial term, an accountancy term. It is to reckon with, to consider. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So now we actively pursue holiness, the privilege and legal standing before God of uh, no longer being ruled and controlled by sin is something we have to act on. It's something that changes everyday life. Uh, consider the child trust fund. It's something that's on my mind because my youngest son's turned 18 and uh, he was a beneficiary of this. So the, the then Chancellor Gordon Brown from the Labour government in 2005 set up this scheme to encourage savings uh, for our children. And families and friends were encouraged to help them by saving into this trust fund, which when they turned 18, they could access. And now that first wave of those beneficiaries, those letters are coming through. Now, many of those children turning 18, they now have this money. It's theirs. But unless this young adult takes, takes the proof of the fund to the bank and either withdraws the savings or moves them into another fund, it will have no real positive impact on them at all. It's just words on paper. It's not, it's not accessible. It's not real to them. And likewise, wearing the badge of baptism doesn't automatically change you. We must act on the privilege of being alive to God in Christ by faith. The baptized follower of Christ has a whole new way of looking at themselves now. The true authentic self is God-seeking. The true authentic self is loving his word. The true authentic self is finding pleasure in doing his will. Yes, sin lingers in us, but it is not in control. It isn't the master. Sinful behavior for the baptized believer actually goes against who we are truly in Christ. And our baptism reminds us of this reality. This, our baptism spurs us on to live in the new identity we have in Jesus Christ. The one he has given us, the one he calls us to. Martin Luther, the German priest who sparked the Reformation throughout Europe, with his writings in uh, 1517, said, There is no greater comfort than baptism. 
He would fight against sin and Satan by preaching to himself, quite short and punchy, I'm baptized, I'm baptized. He's speaking to himself, preaching to his heart. Now, he wasn't claiming to be saved simply because he was baptized. And interestingly, Luther was baptized as an infant. So how much greater if he could remember it, being baptized as a believer? But not at all. He understood that baptism is the visible action pointing to an internal reality, a deep change in him that is God-given, the reality of new birth by faith in Jesus Christ. So when you are acting out of character, which is to sin, know it isn't consistent to who God has now made you to be. It isn't his calling on your life. It is not your identity. You are not a master to that. It grieves us when we mess up. It grieves us when we rebel in sin. And this is evidence that we are ruled by Christ Jesus. And so baptism is also a sign, therefore, of our willingness to present our bodies and lives as tools to please God. Look at verse 13. That's what Paul's argument, that's the climax of his argument here, is look how it changes the way you live. Verse 13. But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Nowhere is off limits for God. Your whole life, all your desires, your dreams, your plans, your work, your family, Everything in him belongs to him. You are his. And I know for some, that will sound dreadfully terrifying. And it will. If you're rebelling against God, if you just think he's a tyrant, then yeah, there's nothing worse. But please realize, you are being ruled by other stuff. You have tyrannies over you, whether it's your own expectations of what the ideal life will look like. And it won't deliver. There will be broken expectations. There will be pain and tears. There will be frustration. And the Christian is also promised that. There will be suffering. And yet none of that can cut us off from God's love. None of that changes the identity he gives us, which is resurrection life in Christ Jesus. And as the pastor Tim Keller put it, we are free, therefore, to fight sin, free to win, but we must still fight. We must still fight. And our baptism is a declaration of that intent. Getting out of the water in front of church states our service to sin is ended. We're done with that. It's cancelled. No more. And God king, God's kingdom reigns in us by his spirit, and that's the kingdom we'll gladly serve. But if baptism was only a sign of being united in death and new life to Christ, I was sort of puzzling about this um, after. If, if that was the only aspect, why don't we have a different sort of ceremony where, as Christians, we just reenact being shut in a cave from, say, Friday afternoon to early Sunday morning? And then you open, you know, roll back the stone, and out you come, oh, that was a bit dreadful. And what, why isn't that the, the symbol we use if it's just about being buried, died to sin, and being risen to life? The water is important because it shows the reality that we are washed clean of sin. 
But is it physical baptism that takes sin away? And we've got to go to quite a difficult passage here, but a very clear one in 1 Peter. But firstly, um, in Hebrews 10, 22 then, when we come to does baptism save, let's hear what the pastor here of Hebrews says. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So the great news here is that we can come to God 100% assured. He welcomes us. He knows us because we're clean from our sin and our guilt. Well, how have our hearts been sprinkled and by what? It's not as if someone's cranked open our chest and sort of sprayed in some Dettol or something. How has that happened? Well, earlier in chapter 10, we're told it's not by the blood of bulls and goats, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, that could never take away sin. But in chapter 10, verse 4, we're told we're made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And again in verse 10, and our confidence to be in God's presence comes by the blood of Jesus. And if you've got your Bibles open at Hebrews 10, um, in verse 19, you can see just a few verses before, it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. But again, we haven't had some physical blood poured into us or something like that, have we? So we're talking about spiritual realities. We're talking about a work done that is applied by faith. The washing of our bodies, our baptism, doesn't add to the work that Jesus has done to save us. It is a sign of our appeal, our trust, our dependence, that our hearts, the very control center of who we are, is cleansed by Jesus' sacrifice. As we sang, nothing but the blood will make us clean. And now in 1 Peter, chapter 3, I'll read from verse 20. But Peter here is explaining the salvation we have in Christ. And he's, he's just written in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So you can see there the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, the righteous one for us unrighteous to bring us alive. And then verse 20, he's, he's talking about uh, what then happened, looking at the Old Testament and makes this parallel with what's going on with Noah and the flood. Verse 20, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge, or as you can see in the footnote, the appeal of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, Peter has, obviously, Noah's flood on his mind. And that was where a few people, as he states, Noah's family, chosen by God in a world of unrighteousness, were saved. And more could have been saved. He was building a boat for a very long time. That was a very physical sign that there was a way of salvation for the judgment coming. But Noah was saved by faith. He trusted God's word and acted upon it. The flood was a means of judgment. It brought death to many but it was also the way that Noah and his family were delivered and brought through safely to a new world. 
And this triggers in Peter's mind the connection with Christian baptism. In the gospel, verse 18, by Christ's death, sinners are not only saved from death, but brought into new life. They're made alive in the spirit. Those saved from the flood had to enter the ark. Those saved from God's final judgment are those who enter into Christ. He takes us through the judgment. But what does now saves you mean? Those words, now saves you. If you isolated it, you could end up in numerous errors. It's the water that saves you. So you must pray over the water and put it on you and there's something the water does. Or it's the priest that applies it to you. Um, There's a sort of sacramental effectiveness of grace that takes away some of the sin uh, and whether or not the person believes. These are all teachings that have come up over centuries throughout the church's history of people who have grappled with the importance of this sacrament. But Peter makes it clear that is not what he's teaching. The water isn't magic. Imagine what he could have written, but doesn't. Baptism saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. He's got that down. So it's not like taking a hot shower after a muddy 10K run. Now, at this point, if he was talking about baptism being the means to get rid of sin, he could write, baptism saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as a removal of sin from the soul. The water doesn't take away dirt, but sin of the soul. That that would make it really explicitly clear if he wanted to put the emphasis on the water. But no, Peter doesn't write that. He doesn't go there. What he says is that baptism, as a pledge of a clear conscience, or as the footnote says, an appeal to God for a clear conscience. So he focuses on the fact that baptism, representing the gift of faith in the person, responding to God's work. Showing here, here is a response to the work that God has already done. And how does it save? Well, he makes it explicit, doesn't he? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter, in step with Paul, as in Romans 6, verse 4 territory, resurrection of Jesus is the act by which we are saved from death. That baptism signifies. It's through Jesus' resurrection we come through death. Water baptism is the outward witness of his saving power. But it is only vitally realized by the personal commitment of faith into Jesus Christ, by the individual believer. And one of the sadnesses is, certainly in my ministry, having the privilege of baptizing people, both younger and older, and baptizing adults, who I thought had made their promises in all good conscience from what I could see. They were credible promises, credible professions. We baptized them, we celebrated, and now nowhere with the Lord. And I'm speaking honestly when I say, that is the one reason I'd leave ministry. I struggle with it. The pain of seeing people turn away, even having made a public profession but it can only be vitally realized by faith, the gift of God, a change in the heart. I could have poured a hundred liters of water over them, dunked them a hundred times, or I don't know, three times seven, that's quite a perfect number in biblical terms, you know. So, but no, it wouldn't have changed. 
Because a miracle needs to take place that we plead for Christ to do by his spirit in each human heart. And verse 22 here shows how permanent the salvation is that Jesus gives, which is the hope for me. When we see frail people make promises and we're working out this side of eternity, Lord, where are they? Have they drifted for a time? Will they come back to you? We keep praying, we keep praying, because actually the hope is actually again in what Jesus has done. What does it say in verse 22? He who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. There is the big picture. Who is in charge? Who is reigning? Who is exalted? Who has everything under his feet? Jesus Christ. And our baptisms declare that. We are looking forward and upward to him who is reigning now. Our salvation cannot be snatched from him. All demonic powers are overcome and conquered. Christ is victorious. And church, this is powerful good news for us. It's powerful good news for the churches that Peter was writing to, scattered across the Roman Empire, feeling as small as anything, like an ant before the might of the Roman Empire. Squeezed. How are we going to cope? How are we going to stay together? We're scattered everywhere. How, How is the Lord in charge? And this is the word of promise he gives them. It is powerful for us as a church here in the UK where we might feel marginalised. We're certainly not in as much discomfort as first century Christians or other Christians around the world today who are facing persecution, imprisonment, even the loss of life for doing what we're doing right now. But who is in charge? The risen victorious King of Kings. And having water applied to us and standing up and making promises before his church is a way we're saying that is where my heart is set. That is on whom I serve. That is the kingdom that rules me. So this morning, if we have not received Christ Jesus as Savior, can I ask you, why not come to him today? Maybe you have big, profound questions that are are obstacles in the way, and I get that. So maybe the first step is just to honestly say before the Lord, Here are my questions, teach me. Which actually is the place of humility and submission and desire to go forward. Don't continue in your sin against God. Don't carry your shame. Don't head towards hell where you will be cut off from God's love. You're already tasting his blessing now, but you don't want to admit to it. The good gifts you enjoy, the joy, the peace, the meaning, the things that make sense are all his fingerprints of his goodness. And the sin and the shame and the suffering and the things that are broken are also great big signposts to us to say we were meant for more, as Grace said earlier. That this loss, this hurt has to be made up in some way. And God said, yes, look at the resurrection. That is the final word. Don't ignore the call of God's spirit, even this morning on your life. If you're a professing Christian and not baptized, why not? Here at Grace Church, we want to help you make credible. We want to help you make mature decisions and credible and mature professions of faith. If you believe Christ is your savior, then be proactive. Take hold of the badge that he says you have. 
come and chat with me or the other elders. We'd love to make that happen. If you're a Christian and you're confused about baptism, perhaps you were baptized as an infant and you're not sure what that means for you. How, how does that work out? Um, you're, you're baptized as an adult and you're struggling in your faith and you're having periods of drifting away. Then this matters. This gift, this token is given with the promises still real for you. You're not alone. Come and chat. Come and chat with me. I'd love to spend time with you going through this pastorally. Make sure you're here next week to hear the teaching on the Lord's Supper, the gift given to strengthen you throughout your walk with him this side of glory. So finally, I want to suggest we end this sermon, this time together in God's word with some declarations. These are the, the promises, the questions that are formed as decision um, questions that we use in baptism and also the questions of commission, the statement of intent of how you're to live. I'll just put the uh, slide up. There's a few here. I'm going to ask you all to stand. Please stand. If you're here as someone who's baptized into the faith of Jesus Christ, and this is a reiteration, an opportunity, again, to say to the Lord in, with thankful hearts, this is where I stand. If you're, not here as a, if you're here as a believer, as someone who does not accept this, please don't say these words. But just in the quiet, perhaps pray. Call upon God. Say, where are you? And is my life meant to be with you? And see how he answers. To follow Christ means dying to sin and rising to new life with him. Therefore I ask, do you reject the devil and all rebellion against God? I reject them. Do you renounce the deceit and corruption of evil? I renounce them. Do you repent of the sins that separate us from God and neighbor? I repent of them. Do you turn to Christ as Savior? I turn to Christ. Do you submit to Christ as Lord? I submit to Christ. Do you come to Christ the way, the truth, and the life? I come to Christ. Those who are baptized are called to worship and serve God. So will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in the prayers? With the help of God, I will. Will you persevere in resisting evil and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? With the help of God, I will. Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? With the help of God, I will. Will you seek and serve Christ in all people, loving your neighbor as yourself? With the help of God, I will. Will you acknowledge Christ's authority over human society by prayer for the world and its leaders, by defending the weak and by seeking peace and justice? With the help of God, I will. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, Holy Spirit, the giver of life and sanctifier of your people, would you Raise up your church, not just here, Grace Church, but your church throughout the United Kingdom, your church throughout the world, that we would be a people unashamed of your good news, that we would live out in the power of your spirit as we've just 
said and prayed and reaffirmed that by faith in Christ Jesus, the one who died was buried and rose again. In him we have new life. Sin no longer rules us. We are your children and we pray that we live our lives with our hearts set on eternity as baptized believers, as people who are in Christ Jesus and cannot be lost. Lord, this week, would we show that we belong to you in word and deed. In Jesus' name, amen.